Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with the writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. The title of the book... The Suffering of Chasing Dreams, and the author is Danny Duran, and Danny joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Danny. Hi, Steve. How are you? Well, great to have you with us. Uh, This is an incredible book, Chasing Dreams. We're going to talk about the importance of chasing dreams, and of course, the title also contains that word suffering, and we'll find out about how that changed your life, too, but... Just to give everybody a little background on Danny, uh, he was a prize fighter, a Brahma Bull rider, a bareback Bronco rider, professional roller skating derby skater for 32 years, even a professional Texas bounty hunter, uh, and and a successful entrepreneur. On top of all that, um, of course, unfortunately, he even spent time in prison. But we'll get into some of the details about that, Danny. First of all, just uh, great to have you with us. Well, thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Well, let's go back. Let's go back to those early years that, I guess, uh, made you so mad you were going to make sure your dad would eat his words, right, because of what he did to you. Uh, correct, Steve. You know, uh, at, um, when you're abused as a child, mentally, physically, or sexually, or et cetera, you know, a, a lot of kids uh, retaliate in, in, in different ways. The beatings and the sexual abuse, and et cetera, I, I think that's what motivated me. And when I turned around and told my mother what him and my aunt were doing to me, uh, she slapped me down and they put me in juvenile hall for incorrigible boys. You know, and, and uh, I think that's why a lot of kids today are afraid to speak up. Uh, afraid of what what uh, the outcome might be, or the, the demise of a marriage, probably, or it's, is it their fault, or you know, and and but uh, a lot of kids are told, well, you're never going to amount to nothing, blah 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 blah. And then there's good people out there too with good role model parents, but then there's those other parents that that uh, they don't give a hoot, and so that really motivated me. You know, I was going to show them knew. that. Uh, you you knew at that moment in time, I'm going to show them because you have felt something inside you in spite of what they were saying to and doing to you. Yes. I was, you know, I always had a dream, even when I was uh, four years old. I had a dream of becoming a professional athlete. And one way or another, I was going to try to execute that dream. I was only four years old. And that's all I ever talked about. I kept running away from school. Uh in them days, there was a lot of racial problems. We moved into an all-Anglo uh, neighborhood, and and uh, I got beat up at school, my brother and I and my sister, and I got spit on, and, and, and then I went home. I wouldn't go back to school. And uh, in the second grade, I just dropped out. And and uh, that's when I was starting to tell my mom everything that my dad and my aunt were doing to me, and then she slapped me down and said I was full of mendacity. And, and put me in, uh, in juvenile hall for three years. And uh, I was determined that I was going to prove them wrong. I was going to prove them that, that I can't amount to anything. 
to something in my life. And as I grew up, I realized other kids could too. And that, that nobody has to take that kind of verbal abuse and keep having those words saying, oh, you're never going to amount to anything. I'm sure you've heard that sometime in your life from other people, uh, Steve. You know, mm-hmm. and people can make it. They can make it. You know, there is a lot of suffering along the way as, as you know, you, you try to fulfill your dreams. Boy, do I know that. You know, I, I, uh, I did a lot of things wrong, and I did a lot of things right. You know, but, but um, that really did motivate me. You know, I was, I was out to prove not to them, but uh, a lot of members of, of my biological family that, that uh, I was going to be a somebody in my life. And uh, I think I accomplished a lot of things. So when you got out of juvenile hall, what was what was the something that happened that uh, started putting you on a road that you knew that you were going to accomplish your dreams? You know, Steve, I had so much animosity and hostility towards my mother and my father and my aunt. And I, I said to myself, you know what? I've always wanted to be a bullfighter in Mexico. And so I went to Tijuana, Mexico, and I, and I trained for about 10 months a year by some of the best bullfighters in the world, Paco Camino, Carlos Arusa, at the time a female uh, bullfighter called uh, 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 Patricia McCormick. And uh, I trained, and, and they said I was good enough to become uh, uh a bullfighter and have my professional Korea, which is uh, my first uh, bullfight. And uh, as I, I didn't have the money to buy the, the outfit that you wear out there. And um, I was out there. I couldn't believe it, the, the, the intensity of the crowd, the, the music of the bullfights. And, and I was only 13 years old. And, and uh, I had my, birth, uh, my first Korea. That means uh, my first bullfight. And, and uh, then my second, I got gored and I quit. And I went back to Los Angeles and I started training to be a boxer. And I also started training to um, be a professional skater. A friend of mine, that uh, he was about my age at the time, I was about, uh, about 14 about th- that time when I went back to Los Angeles. And uh, I started training to be a, a boxer and I was too young to to have a, any professional fights. I trained for several years, about three years. And uh, I never passed the amateurs. And um, while I was doing that, I was training to be a professional roller derby skater. I was going to make it one way or another, no matter what I did, whether it was professional wrestling, professional roller derby, uh, even though uh, roller derby is all choreographed. You know, I, it still was something. It was I was in front of the crowds. And I think that's what motivated me even more. And then I became one of the greatest skaters of all time, in roller derby, that is. And I was in, uh, also got into some movies because of roller derby, the Kansas City Bomber with Raquel Welch, Roller Ball. I was also in the movie The Ten Commandments. I was also in a Mexican soap opera in Houston, Texas, called Padres Con Pure. And, and as the years went by, I, I continued to uh, ride bulls, and, and uh, I also became... At the age of uh, 19, 18, I'm sorry, at the age of 18, I became a um, professional bounty hunter uh, for uh, several uh, bail bonds companies and also uh, a, rep- a repossessor. I used to repossess uh, heavy equipment like uh, rigs and stuff. 
And as the years went by, I kept skating, and 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 uh, I wanted to fulfill my dreams. <clears throat> and uh, by the way, I need to mention this too. This is very important. While I was in juvenile hall, I was thrown off of a two-story building, and I had an outer spiritual experience. And I went up this funnel, like when I was out of my body, and I saw a lamb in a line. The lamb was asleep on the line, and and. Uh, so peace and tranquility there, and, and, and then I saw colors I never saw before, and and then I heard music I never heard, and then I, a hand kept pushing me back down through the funnel into my uh, body, and and I, when I woke up I was on my way to the morgue, and and um, I woke up in the in the truck itself, and and uh, I scared the two drivers they took me back <laughs> to the juvenile hall, and and. Uh, that was my first encounter with God. I never did mm. see his face or anything, but through the years as a bounty hunter, and I want to remain on this subject for a minute, my second spiritual experience with God was I was in uh, uh, Bogota, Colombia, arresting somebody, and um, my partner got away with the person we were arresting, and uh, his partners, about six or seven of them, caught up with me, and beat the living tar out of me, and, and I was bleeding profusely. They tied me up in a car, and I know this sounds like something out of a movie script, but it really did happen. And and uh, they they uh, tied me up, put me up in this old car, and threw me over this down into the, like into the ocean. But the car hit a boulder, and I felt some hands pushing me out, and and uh, it. I had my second outer spiritual experience with God. This time, I came face to face with God, and, and I thought, "This is, you know, this can't be real." And and um, the reason I know everything that happened when the car hit the ocean, it blew up, and there was four kids that witnessed everything. I woke up in the hospital after seven days of being in a coma, and my uh, spiritual experience with God. You know, I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. It was a big light, lighter than the sun. But I did see him, and, and I did speak to him. He's the one that uh, told me to write the books and, and inspired me even more to write the books. And, and uh, he told me, a lot of people won't believe you when you tell this story, but tell it anyways. Most real Christians who talk the talk and walk the walk will believe you. Other ones who just talk the talk and don't walk the walk, they're not going to believe you. You know, many other people, Steve, have written books about outer spiritual experiences like that. And the two purposes for me writing this book as I was growing up, I kept thinking to myself, one day I'm going to write a book, and this is what God has told me to do. I didn't have God in my life for 55 years. I had a, a friend of mine. She was an airline stewardess, and she kept taking me to see uh, Billy Graham and and. I still kept doing, I still wasn't flying right. You know, money to me and fame was important to me at the time. Uh, um, my, in fact, my biggest night in skating was in uh, Kaminsky Park, 1972, where 53,000 people poured in to see me skate. And then uh, 28,000 people at Lubbock, Texas, came to me specifically to see me skate. And then in uh, Monterey, Mexico, 38,000 people which motivated me even more. And I, 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 um, I sent some tickets to my mom and dad just, just to show them that, that I made it in life. And one thing, even though it wasn't football or baseball, something really big like that, I still made it. 
and they still didn't come. So that depressed me even more because they didn't show up. So I, I, I started uh, um, in 1988. Um, I had an offer from a big movie company, and I turned them down. And uh, I was continuing to start writing my book, and I kept getting interrupted, so I kept get stopping and stopping. And then I, you know, many times when I went out, to, the bounty hunting business started to get a lot more dangerous. I got shot. I got stabbed. They killed my partner. They they uh, shot my boy. Uh, they they um, blew up my house, and and um, it just got very dangerous with a lot of things I was doing with the government too. You know, so it it um, after my partner got killed, you know, I kind of slowed down a lot, and and um, I started concentrating on other big business venture deals, and I ended up opening up a couple of meat markets there in San Antonio, Texas, and became an entrepreneur, pretty successful, until the demise of my my uh, second marriage. I had to go through five marriages to get the right wife, uh, and and the life that I was leading, and that's why a lot of my marriages were coming to a demise. But but um, anyways, I I, I just. Um, Sometimes I can't even believe the things I've done in my lifetime. But it's how did all you end up in prison? How did you end up in prison? Where you okay, met let, uh, your wife? Let me, let, okay, let, let me tell you. Uh, I prefer that they read about that in the book, but okay, I will good. give you a little bit. Uh, no, I will give you a little bit. You know, I, I went up to uh, Barcelona, Spain, to arrest uh, this lady, and when I brought her back. Uh, um, she was an ex a sheriff. She was with the sheriff's department at one time, and um, she said, "Don't, don't, don't humiliate me like this, and and incarcerate me there in my own town." I said, "Look, you jumped bail. I didn't. I took her back, and she claimed that I did something to her, and I ended up in prison. And uh, I spent five years there. And before I went to prison, I might add, I might say this, uh, Steve." You know, I was I was a very incorrigible, beyond incorrigible person. I didn't have God in my life. I thought that my money was my God. You know, and I was mad at the world because of what my dad my and my mom did to me. You know, and it goes way back. And I was holding on to old tapes that I should have let go years ago. You know, I'm not uh, proud of as to why I was incarcerated in prison. But I am glad that I went to prison. I found God there, and I found my wife, my ordained minister wife there, Dharma. And and it's changed the course and complexion of the way I live. And that, then I started to think about what my encounter with God, and I started writing my books. He wanted me to write four books. And he also said that it would inspire millions of other young people and young kids that have been abused. And so that's what I did, and I wrote all that in my book, you know. And and um, I, you know, there's a part in my book that that uh, that I wrote that I, I really think people should, if if they buy the book, you know, there, there's about you can't get away with anything that you do that's bad, you know. And I put down there's a spy in the sky, and he's Jewish. He sees everything that you're doing behind closed doors. He hears every word that comes out of your mouth. And he knows everything you're thinking. So if you're thinking, thinking, stop thinking, thinking. Don't feed into those thought, thoughts because that's Satan trying to lead you to the wrong path. 
you know, and every time Satan reminds me of my past prior for me to be incarcerated, I remind Satan of his future. And and you know what his future is. <laughs> so, right. you know, there's a lot of other things that, and, you know, like I said earlier, uh, Steve, there's two real main reasons why I wrote the book. To, to You know, I illustrate some good points in reference to, um, to fulfilling your dreams. I always think when a man and a woman stops dreaming, they stop living. You know, and, and what a lot of people don't realize, it takes teamwork to make that dream work. And there is no success without a successor. Teams make dreams, successors make success. And sometimes failures make felons. You got to you got to believe in what you're doing to achieve what you're gonna do. And oh, and very, I think I'm sorry, go ahead, Steve. Well, very well said, Danny. We we kind of need to wrap it up here and and that's a great way to close out just talking about this, this incredible book about an incredible life of Danny Duran, uh, The Suffering of Chasing Dreams. Danny, tell us how to get your book. You can get my book online by uh, Ex Libris, um, Amazon, or The Suffering of Chasing Dreams by Danny Duran. Um, there's also a video out now, uh, the Danny Duran, uh, I mean, excuse me, the, the Suffering of Chasing Dreams by Danny Duran video. It's online now. And um, it's a good book, and I think I think anybody that reads that book will get touched by the book. I've had quite a few people call me up and tell me that they got very emotional. I've had several young people come up and tell me that uh, it's inspired and changed their lives. You know, so it's 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 you know I think that my life, everybody has a story, everybody has a dream, and everybody is more than capable of executing that dream. I do want to say one more thing before we close. To my readers or possible readers that come to the future, always remember, if we should ever meet and you forget me, you have lost nothing. If you meet Jesus Christ and forget him, you've lost everything. God bless all of you. All I can say to that is amen. Well, thank you, Danny, for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. Thank you for having me on the show. God bless you, and it was my pleasure. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. 
here on Connect with Juliana through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage, connectwithjulianainmedia.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, German Leaves, Opposing Nazi Cannons with Words. And the author is Dr. Ralph Vanderheide. And Dr. Vanderheide joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Dr. Vanderheide. Hi, how are you today? Great to have you with us. Very few, I'm sure, if uh, probably uh, not many at all, would recognize the the uh, name of this publication in the resistance movement, movement during World War II, and you're going to tell us about how it all came about, and I guess how you got involved with this, and a little bit about your background, but it was a little publication which challenged the Nazis and informed Germans of current truths of the war years, uh, basically their history, as you write, the humanities, the, the post-war issues. But let's uh, back up and find out how did you come across this, this publication and pronounce the publication the correct way for us? <laughs> okay, it's called German Leaves or Deutsche Blätter für ein europäisches Deutschland gegen ein deutsches Europa. In other words, the German leaves, like Walt Whitman's leaves, uh, in favor of a Europeanized Germany against a Germanized Europe. And I, I came on to it through, uh, through my dissertation father at, uh, at, at SUNY, State of New York University at Albany, uh, as a, uh, a subject for a Ph.D. dissertation because Spalik is what was becoming and now is at 86 the expert in the world on, on this. He really is on this exile literature period. Uh, when so many uh, Germans uh, fled in, in, in all professions. Of course, we had this famous scientists and philosophers and school people like Fritz Carson and so on. And in the movies, we have from Bertolt Brecht in the, that kind of work, Hollywood work, to, to uh, Hedy Lamarr, I guess. But uh, uh, there, are, there were many, many, many. And he was just fascinated by this and saw it all had to be preserved and got me into it in this aspect of it. So the, the uh, genesis of this was the uh, Germans who were fleeing Nazi Germany and uh, they ended up in Chile t and, and yeah, founded they're, this they're, intellectual they're, magazine. Yeah, highly. They had leading intellectuals of the day. And another great benefit of it was they they turned to to the the literature of Latin America and introduced German speaking people to that. Their names were uh, Udo Ruxer and Albert Tyler. Ruxer was an attorney, 
and taught a publicist in the publishing business, and they got together there in uh, in Chile. And I, I tell things like how difficult it was working there in that day, because at the University of Chile, they uh, they just didn't do German at all. I was at the university not long ago, a couple months ago, and you know it's very different now. But uh, it would still be difficult to do that in uh, in, in in German. So they had to proof and proof and proof, and it's there's hardly a mistake in the magazine due to their to their work. And uh, we just had a tiny office, virtually no secretarial help. But it, it's the mission of the. Of the of the publication that that interests me and the the the, the uh, fostering of humanism, uh, which was really Germans' rightful role. Some of the said it's a book against uh, Germans. Had some German friends read it, and they don't find it so. It tells the truth. I mean, Germans did cause two wars, three wars or more. You know, some, from about 1870 on, they were real warmongers. And uh, I, don't, I, I wouldn't say that's the German character, and uh, neither did they. They wanted it stopped, and they wanted the rightful heritage to take place. Now, so this publication, uh, not at all, this publication got into the hands of Jews in the concentration camps. Yeah, well, yeah, my, they send it to people, in, to the young prisoners of war, who uh, most of them uh, didn't really know much about the background of their own country. They were too uh, they were too young when uh, you know when they were captured. And uh, and the War Department, I have letters from the War Department. Those letters, copies of them, allowed these this publication of these gentlemen to to distribute it in the camps and. Uh, I had connection with the camps because my father worked for the railroad and had the job of checking the cars to see if they hadn't been broken into at night and so on. And and here were all these Germans, young men, and they made a fuss over me, remembering their own thinking of their own relatives and so on at home. And my dad spoke Dutch, and they fussed around between Dutch and English and German and understood each other pretty well. So I had a personal connection there with it. Another personal connection I had, by the way, I should point out, and that's in the book, is that my cousin in 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 Helderland, in a beautiful little city called Rainen on the Rhine River, where my grandmother came from, was murdered by the Germans in, in this way. They were captured. His platoon was captured, told they would be sent to a camp. Instead, were marched off beside the road to a, a, a ravine, kind of a ditch, and each was shot through the head. The Dutch say they were chrysnifled, rubbed out uh, unceremoniously. And mm. there, as, there are many acts like that, acts against the Jews and so on, that I document. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, other atrocities, which weren't in the original dissertation, they are they have been added to it and made it most readable and interesting. Lots of personal stuff, you know. Right. 
In one of your chapters in the book, you look like you do a, uh, an overall comparison or explanation of Nazism, socialism, and communism. Now, tell us a little bit about that. Well, I, I didn't do a heck of a lot with that, but but they, but uh, in in analyzing that, I just kind of, just kind of let it let it go in in a, in a couple of articles. But they they seem to uh, make uh, I'm trying to say this right. Uh, uh, socialism was something rather good, <laughs> and communism and and, and 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 Nazism or Nazism were something very bad. Maybe that's a simple summary of of, of that. Uh, because uh, what? Nazism, communism, is because they advocate uh, revolutionary violence, or is yeah, that yeah, one that, of the that reasons? That's a good point, yeah. But the other point it, what I wanted to make is that there's nothing, there's nothing uplifting. <laughs> you know, it can't be found in, 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 in Nazism, certainly. And uh, what Germany suffered in those years when, when they were in power, that they, they destroyed the, their philosophy, as it were. You know, it, it affected... It affected the local grocery. It affected the language. It affected government greatly, and, and attitudes of those people who had to go through those 12 years. And, and it lasted for. But they were all. They were concerned. This group of intellectuals were really concerned that uh, that it would take some time to rub that out, to change it, again to return Germany to its rightful heritage. And uh, and, and that's how it turned out. So. You know, they corrupted the language terribly. For example, mm. the, there was no really free reign or uh, rights for people in the arts. Terrible place to, to be if you're in the arts, which I'm sure you know about. But in, in art itself, in sculpture, in, uh, in literature, in, in music even. So, so that was the problem with it. <laughs> With, with Nazism, besides the lies and the, and, and the violence. Hitler said violence was the way to go, and is documented on that, you know, from the, uh, from, from, that, from his very words, from people like uh, Louis Lochner, who, who heard him say it and documented it, that uh, violence works. He talked about the, uh, uh, we touch upon this, uh, he talked about the uh, the murder of the Armenians and the, and the and the terrible things that happened to them and said, who remembers? That, that was the general attitude of, 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 the, of, of, the, of the regime. Like nobody would care anyway, kind of an attitude. Right, nobody would care. Who remembers uh, yeah. the Armenians, he said, in a, hmm. in a speech at Berchtesgaden, which was taken down by, by, by Lochner, the, the well-known journalist in the day. Well, I see you also have in the appendixes, you have uh, flyers and letters and photos. Explain what that is. Yeah, we do. We, the... I'm glad you brought that one up because uh, they uh, they ha they send out these humanitarian uh, 
flyers, uh, like, please help the, the children, the homeless children, and uh, and money for the, for the magazine to give to the prisoners of war and, and other such uh, causes. And, and those are all, and that, were done, that had to be printed, of course, again in, in uh, Chile, and uh, they got the job done. Even a letter of appreciation from a German POW. Uh, yeah, there, there, there are letters. One, one fellow wrote, I guess there were several, but I, I had one in, in my possession thanking me. Thanking the Deutsche Blätter, thanking the two the gentlemen, because they were the force of uh, for opening his eyes, and he had he had become himself a lawyer in uh, post-war Germany, and and was also a writer. And there's a, there's a person his personal letter is is in the book in the in the appendix of uh, his words of thanks. By the way, when I'm on that, there are also some good photos of. Of the um, some kids in the Hitler Youth and in some of the Nazi propaganda, the uh, thing mm-hmm. of being uh, trying to make Nazism look like a wonderful place for philosophy mm-hmm. to be reared in, and you know sort of a picture of a sweet little mother with her apron making her apple pie for the children to return home and become good Nazis. Uh, some mm. of that's in there too, as well. And you have a chapter on religion. What about religion in your book? What do well, you mean? that's an interesting chapter. It's very interesting for me because I, I live here in Mormon country in Utah and uh, am not a good member of the church, but uh, I, I'm familiar with religious impulses and religious uh, leanings and all that because because I, I, I was reared here. And they question re- the value of religion, as, as I do, in preventing war. And and that was a big issue because being there in Catholic country, in Chile, uh, they, had, they got into some pretty strong verbal conflicts with the, uh, the powers that be of the Catholic Church in those Latin American countries. And, uh, you know, the question becomes, would some being reared in a secular way uh, prevent war any less than being fanatically religious? And uh, Ritzer and Tyler both uh, weren't too uh, supportive of or religious views that didn't think that they had done much for the for preventing war and uh, hatred in the, in the world. They were really dedicated to peace, to the to the classical uh, humanistic tradition that existed in uh, in Germany. Uh, in fact, I, I can uh, let me just read a little quote. The period of classical humanism in the cultural history of Germany lies between the birth of Gotthold Ephraim Lessing and the death of Goethe in 1832, believing that the 19th and 20th centuries had turned away from the humanistic tradition 
the leaves long to reawaken it. And representatives of the classical humanist, humanistic tradition include Lessing, Herder, Schiller, Goethe, Kant, Beethoven. Americans have certainly heard of some of them. The writers and thinkers of this epoch emphasized the significance of the human element in history and the dominance of man's reason. Accepting this concept some 100 years later, Udo Ruxer was confident that potentially man's reason was the key to understanding his inclination for war. And, and, and it goes on. Hmm. But those were the issues. Why, why, right. why, why is it done? Why do it? Why would, why would you want to do it? Education became a, 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 a subject of, uh, of some interest, too, because uh, was education the, the salvation? Was the, they were always looking to, to stop this thing. No more war. No more war, period. I, I like to say that, that the Germans seem to have accepted these ideas because one goes there today and Germans don't want war, French don't want war, Dutch don't want war. I always say they have bridges now, wonderful tunnels, and flush toilets. So and <laughs> and so there's no reason for war. But uh, it's a bit facetious. Well, but uh, it's we appreciate you sharing with us, Dr. Vanderheide. Uh, the name of his book, the title is German Leaves: Opposing Nazi Cannons with Words. Tell us how to get your book. Well. You can get the book from Ex Libris and uh, uh, go to the Internet. I don't think I have that that's, that's on my handy the website. but um, Exlibris.com, right. X-L-I-B-R-I-S, and, of course, you have it for our, 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 our listeners. So Ex Libris. Well, thanks again for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. Thank you, sir. Enjoy, Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu, Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book is The United States Worth Saving for a More Perfect Union. And the author is Charles W. Thompson. And Charles joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Charles. Hello, Steve. Great to have you with us. Uh, your book, as you put it, 
spells out the danger which our republic has encountered and how the 21st century presents new hurdles to surmount and reclaim our democracy. And you're also going to focus on conditions which have eroded representative government, and you also offer proposals to cement public control over government. So you have a obviously a, a very clear direction, and, and you see it clearly, and you also see some uh, solutions, which we definitely need to hear. But first of all, tell us a little bit about your background, all your government service, and, and why you wrote the book. Well, Steve, uh, all my life, uh, beginning uh, just as a youngster, I, I had a, an interest in uh, in government, and uh, I pursued this in, in college. Uh, and my degrees are in uh, in uh, political science, uh, in uh, economics, and uh, and uh, to some degree in in legal matters. So I, I've pursued this uh, all my life. Uh, my my career has been focused uh, uh, on uh, public management, and uh, I've served as a city manager uh, for some 36 years in uh, five different cities uh, in Ohio, uh, Missouri, Michigan, and California. And I've seen and dealt with uh, uh, the federal government, state governments, uh, throughout my career, and actually worked for the governor of Missouri for a while. Uh, to draft legislation for an office of urban affairs, and so uh, I've I've watched this uh, uh, occur uh, in terms of what is happening uh, over a period of some uh, 50 years, 45 years, and uh, frankly have become dismayed with uh, what is happening, and I've seen uh, our system eroded to a point where our representation and, uh, and frankly, the growth of our nation has outstripped uh, uh, what the uh, original uh, arrangements uh, were provided to provide. Uh, so th this is why I wrote the book. It was is to call attention to this because what has happened, Steve, is that uh, these changes haven't occurred like in great uh, one-event happenings that uh, really call people's attention and voters' attention to it, they've been incremental uh, and occurred over many, many years and, and just have developed as a matter of practice. Uh, and one of these, and one of the most important, is uh, how we elect uh, our representatives. Uh, the Obviously, in a republic, uh, the people uh, are supposed to uh, elect their representatives, and those representatives are supposed to be responsible to the public. And uh, we've lost that particular arrangement. Uh, and it comes about, Steve, uh, a lot by two main factors. One is money, uh, and where we see today hundreds of millions of dollars uh, being thrown into political campaigns uh, when we can't afford to support schools. Uh, and uh, the other is the practice of gerrymandering electoral districts to guarantee who is going to be elected. And uh, uh, we can't cast any stones at uh, any party, particularly for this, because they, they both do it. And, uh, and, it's, and it's done as strictly a self-serving thing and not uh, for the preservation or the enhancement of a republic. Well, we certainly have some big challenges. You point out as well 
that nearly one of every three citizens live in only four states. And yes. so explain the impact of that. Uh, the, the interesting thing about this is, uh, is how it affects representation. Um, we have, for example, those four states, which would be California, Texas, uh, Florida, and New York, uh, where, as you say, uh, nearly one out of every three Americans live in those four states. They're represented in the Senate by, by eight uh, uh, senators. Um, now, that means that where if we were representing people instead of uh, pieces of land, uh, those four states would have 32 senators or the equivalency in voting power as compared to eight. Uh, we have, for example, Steve, we have one county in California, and you have it there in Texas, uh, where one county has more population than than any one of about four or five states. Uh, now those states, uh, and there's and there's seven of them, under a million people, with two senators, and only one congressman, uh, which is which is allocated on the basis of population. So they come out with more power in the Senate on a population basis than they do uh, in the House of Representatives. Uh, so it's it's contrary to uh, obviously uh, the very definition of a republic, and uh, we have a situation where most of the people of our nation are underrepresented. Underrepresented and also under understanding what is going on. Our our general populace. How would you describe them and their awareness of what's really going on in government today and in and in politics? Uh, Steve, I think first of all, I think the general public uh, and I have I've talked to thousands of them uh, over the course of years. They're greatly dismayed with politics in general, uh, and I think a part of it is the fact that we have 24/7, 365 days of uh, of politics and people just frankly become a little bit tired of it, uh, and that's reflected. Uh, that, uh, along with some other factors, is reflected in the fact that in a lot of elections we see less than 20% of the registered voters uh, voting in elections. Uh, we see people, uh, and I've actually uh, tried this experiment of talking to people, and you would be amazed how many people can't even tell you who their representative is. Uh, and uh, and when when a, a a person who is running for political office depends upon large amounts of money, where is he going to get that money? Now that money comes from special interest uh, uh, sectors of our nation, and when people give money to a politician, uh, you can your common sense will tell you that they expect something in return. And frankly, we see that return being given. Uh, so who are our representatives, and that means about 80 to 85 percent of them, uh, who do they really represent? Uh, we see the effects of that in uh, in all kinds of uh, loopholes uh, in our legislation. We see, uh, we see all kinds of special favors being given. Uh, and th this is not what was intended by Ben Franklin when he said he was giving us a republic if we could keep it. A lot of citizen responsibility, 
obviously uh, most citizens don't understand their responsibility. So political parties then, political parties really kind of run the show. The citizens kind of stand back and the, and the small amount of folks that are involved in political parties, they kind of run everything. That, that, you've said it. The, the, you know, the interesting thing, Steve, is that uh, uh, political parties really aren't legal situations. They're, they're in that never-never land we, we refer to in the law as a being extra-legal. Uh, you know, one of the remedies that we could uh, we could try would be to make these political parties legal uh, and uh, require that they abide by certain honest and uh, and straightforward campaign uh, situations, and as a part of that, require candidates to submit an application for the job. It's always been interesting to me that every business in this nation. Uh, and every local government requires a full application, uh, personal interviews, background checks, and so forth before they'll hire anybody, even for a clerk in the office. But yet we hire people to run our affairs and, and uh, uh, make uh, and take uh, votes on things that, assist, that affect our very lives, and we don't even know who they are in many cases. Uh, they never submit any application. They are what the campaign people tell us they are. And uh, sometimes we find that there's a lot of differences uh, uh, between fact and fiction. So as you look back, back to the Founding Fathers, how do you think they would view today? What would be their, uh, their evaluation of how we're doing? I, I think they would be aghast at, at what is happening. Uh, they never intended. In fact, uh, as you'll recall, Steve, uh, our, our, the father of our country told us that uh, parties would be the ruination of our republic. He warned us against uh, political parties. But uh, it appears that uh, we have no other choice as to how we're going to run our government, so let's make the most of it by making them legal. Uh, but I think our founding fathers would be aghast at it. Uh, but you can imagine, too, that uh, a person in 1789 could have no uh, concept of what has happened uh, just in the last hundred years. Uh, a person living, uh, Steve, uh, my great-great-grandfather, and I'm sure your great-grandfather, lived at a time that they would be aghast even uh, if they came back today. Uh, and you can imagine what a person of 1789, how they would view society today. We live with a world economy. When the economy in 1789 was localized, uh, for the most part, uh, and had no effect on government. Uh, today we have a worldwide economy, uh, and where, uh, uh, our concepts of capitalism has been corrupted to a point, uh, where we, uh, local, uh, uh, or I'll say free competitive enterprise, is almost impossible. Uh, they're confronted with uh, worldwide uh, conglomerates uh, that uh, have their goods made anywhere in the world uh, with slave labor. Uh, and uh, so we've corrupted the very system of our economy that uh, we're the most proud of. These so are how things can that I... we have to get a hold of. Right. So how can I, as a typical citizen, how can the regular person, the, just the regular American, help remedy the problems we face? 
Well, first of all, they, they can they can become more familiar with what is actually coming on, and not become a slave to any particular party, and say, "I'm going to insist that uh, our representatives represent us, uh, and uh, and do everything they can to insist that money be taken out of politics." Uh, Steve, I would I think that uh, uh, when you look at the amounts of money that is spent on elections today. It's just, uh, it, well, it blows your mind. Uh, hundreds of millions of dollars are, are put forward into this. Uh, we could we could shorten our campaigns, uh, like they do in, in several other countries, as a matter of fact, to around 60 or 75 days before election, and people could, could then get really interested in it, and they could uh, they could uh, not worry about it for the other 300 days of the year. Uh, we've got to uh, come to a point where politics uh, takes its rightful place and, and lets the citizens get involved. And I think that's one of the ways to involve it. I think our educational system uh, needs to be looked at very thoroughly to make sure that uh, people are prepared for citizenship. Um, and, and we don't see that in a lot of our educational system today. Uh, we're so focused on... Uh, on crafts and, and this kind of thing, which is necessary, uh, but we tend to ignore the very thing that has made us the greatest nation in the world. Very well put. Uh, I think most of us would agree with that. As we look at society, the social mores of society, realistically, what can we do about where we're at in our social mores? Uh, I believe, Steve, that uh, we have not utilized to any degree the intelligence uh, that we have in this nation. Uh, we have thousands and thousands of people who have devoted their lives uh, to the study of economics and, and, uh, and uh, social uh, considerations, and yet uh, they're largely ignored. Their only impact is what they can uh, do to... Uh, uh, teach uh, a few students. Uh, what we need is to have, say, a, an annual conference uh, of uh, these leaders uh, in, in the various fields where they could put forward ideas and suggestions for public debate and consideration. Uh, they know to a great degree what the problems are. Uh, and if we open these things up to general public discussion and debate, uh, our representatives would would take notice, and I think in that way it's a step by step process. We're not going to correct this situation overnight. Uh, it's going to be a long, hard battle because there are major changes in our constitutional framework that needs amendment, and uh, this is one of them. Uh, we need to have the involvement of the intelligence of our nation uh, actively involved uh, in our societies. Uh, you know, Steve, uh, this brings up another uh, idea that uh, that I have noticed in, in, in my career, uh, and that is uh, the, uh, the w there's always going to be great differences among people. But uh, I've seen uh, in, in many cases, I say many cases, several places, uh, where people grow up in neighborhoods that you and I would just gag at, uh, and where parenting... Uh, early life environment, uh, and this, these things uh, are just not available to them. Uh, 
uh, you can't expect a lot of contribution, uh, that is good contribution, from people who have had that kind of situation uh, throughout their lives, and especially their young lives. Uh, I'm always reminded, Steve, of the old statement that people who are born on the third base think they hit a, thir- hit, think they had a hit a triple. Um, when all of us really get where we are, uh, basically through the help of others, uh, nobody achieves anything strictly on their own. Uh, so we need to involve people uh, who have devoted their lives to these things to offer to us their ideas so that we can look at them, debate them, and decide whether they're going to be good and, and whether they will contribute to our social improvement. Uh, this is how I think we take uh, these baby steps towards improving the mores of our nation. Uh, and along these lines, Steve, if I may, I think uh, that uh, uh, we see uh, history repeating itself. Uh, in the study of history, our historians will tell you that uh, people, uh, societies, tend to repeat themselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, when they have gained liberty in, many, in, a, in a few cases, uh, or actually in several cases throughout history, uh, they've tended to evolve into a sort of hedonistic kind of uh, existence uh, and then start ignoring the very engines of society which allowed them to get there. And by so doing and ignoring what got them there, uh, they slowly uh, open themselves up to a new dictatorship uh, or what we call an oligarchy where just a few people rule uh, and uh, and slip back into serfdom once again. Mm-hmm. And when you view our nation today, Steve, uh, we find that uh, there's something like uh, 40... The estimates go anywhere from 40 to 45 million people uh, who live in in dire uh, uh, circumstances, uh, and where less than about two percent or three percent live almost in a in a style uh, reminiscent uh, uh, of the monarchs of the, of the Middle Ages, and uh, we can't uh, throw rocks at people who succeed because. We'd all do that if uh, perhaps if we could or if we wanted to. Uh, the, the problem is that we don't have a system whereby everybody has an equal chance. Right. And uh, we'll always have the differences. Uh, there's no question about that until we get to a much, much greater degree of, uh, of, uh, of social improvement. We've been listening to Charles W. Thompson, He's the author of his book, Is the United States Worth Saving for a More Perfect Union? Charles, tell us how to get your book. Uh, okay, you can get my book through uh, Amazon.com, through uh, uh, BarnesNoble.com. You can get it through uh, Ex Libris, uh, who's the publisher of the book. Um, uh, those would be the main places you can get it on. Uh, if you have an ebook, you can get it there. Uh, and it will be soon available uh, in bookstores around the nation, I believe, uh, uh, hopefully within the next uh, month or so. Well, thank you so much for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate the opportunity very much. 
Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.